Well, Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be here again this morning at Cape Bible. Lord, I do pray that you would give the increase to our time together now most directly in your word as we take up your living and active word, your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. I do pray that it would cut to the very depth of all that we are and that you would lift our gaze heavenward, that our minds might be set on heaven. Oh God, would you do that? Give the increase now. We beg of you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1, and of course elsewhere, but puts before us the ultimate question of life. Do you know what that question is? Let me read it to you in John 1, 35 to 38. This won't be my main text, but by way of introduction, Jesus puts before us the great question of the ages, the great question of our existence here on earth. And let me pick it up here in verse 35 of John 1. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, this great declaration by John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God. What a declaration. Look at him. Behold, the Lamb of God, telling his disciples, look up. Don't look at me. Look at him. That is the Lamb of God. Look, behold, see the Lamb of God. Well, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Good idea. And so they heard him, they said, I'm going to follow this guy. If that's the Lamb of God, I'm getting in line, I'm going to follow him. So they did, they followed Jesus. Now Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, and here it is, the question of the ages, he looked at them and said, what are you seeking? There it is. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? You look out on the world today and you could watch the NBA playoffs and we've got people seeking an NBA championship or you could watch the college super regionals and baseball and they're seeking a, a World Series berth and then a championship. We've got people all over social media seeking fame, seeking platform, seeking followers. Some of you in a job seeking to climb that corporate ladder. What are you seeking? Bigger home, newer car, new computer, the new mini, iPhone mini. 12, less is more. Okay. What are you seeking? What a question. It's the ultimate question. Why are you here this morning? What are you seeking at Cape Bible? The question of the ages. Well, my goal for this sermon is appropriately audacious, and it is this, that we would behold the glory of Christ in Hebrews 13, that's where I want to go, in Hebrews 13, and be strengthened in our pilgrimage toward the city of God because that's what I want to commend to you as a, as a seeking worthy of life, a seeking the city of God. So Hebrews 13, verses 10 to 14 will make up uh, my sermon this morning. So if you're not there and want to turn there or just listen, I sometimes like to Hope it's okay with the elders here. I like to, to liberate people. You can look at it, but the way I preach, you're going to hear it over you. And that's, that's a, a wonderful thing as well. So Hebrews 13, 10 to 14. Let me read these verses to get them out before us. And then we'll, we'll seek to unpack them together. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There's a context to these verses, and you know this. The immediate context of this passage is a warning against false teaching. That is, adopting any religious discipline or ceremony or ritual in addition to or apart from Christ for purification from sin. And so it's a warning. That's the context here. Warning. Don't look anywhere but to Jesus. Don't look to anywhere but the gospel for purification before God. You see it there in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Now consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So here's the context. Here's the warning. Remember the purity of the gospel, I hear the author of Hebrews saying. Remember your leaders who spoke to you this gospel. Remember the outcome of their way of life. It's God-honoring, fruitful end. And imitate their faith. And what was the substance of their faith? Well, we know this from verse 8 in the immediate context of our passage. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the author is saying, Jesus hasn't changed. He will never change. So when your leaders preach to you, Jesus, he is the one you look to always. The one your leaders taught you and believed in and died for. He is the same always. Therefore, trust in Jesus and him alone. But not all were holding fast to the confession of faith, to their confession of faith. You know that from the book of Hebrews. Not all were holding fast to this confession. So, the author warns in verse 9, do you see it there? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. You see here, foods is parallel with diverse and strange teachings and is used as an example to represent the whole Old Covenant sacrificial system. So the author is just bringing up an example to take up the whole Old Covenant system. The verb led away literally means to flow away like a river. See, the idea is not to be carried off by strange teachings, teachings in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to pause here, and this again, by way of introduction, we need to, to apply this to our own life. This application is, is clear enough, I hope. It is likely that some of you, perhaps, right now, as I preach, are floating away from Christ. I hope that's not the case, but perhaps it is. Some of you sitting in these pews might be floating away from Christ. Some of you are being carried off by strange teachings contrary to Christ, because this is how it usually happens, right? The typical churchgoer doesn't usually wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'll deny Christ today. I'm going to put it on my app with a reminder, say two o'clock this afternoon. Sound good? Let's, let's do that. No, nobody does that. That's not how it works. Leaving Christ is usually done like a lazy river. Can I use this metaphor with you? Like a lazy river pushing a person along gently Quietly, with the person joyfully unaware of the journey downriver. 
What does this look like in the Christian life? Well, I slowly start to neglect the word of God. I slowly start to neglect prayer. I neglect the gathering of the saints. I begin to take lightly sin and practical holiness. Any allegiance to the gospel of Christ alone gets muddied in the lazy river of a secular gospel of self-fulfillment called the American dream. And all of this happens over time while you just float along gradually adopting the pattern of this world. That's how it happens. That's how insidious sin is. We'll float away from Christ and be joyfully unaware of where we're going. But do you know what's at the end of this lazy river of strange teaching? Niagara Falls. That's what awaits you at the end of this river. You will perish if you persist in this way. You and your little raft of ideas will be destroyed. Therefore, according to our text, be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by grace. Do you see it there in verse 9? It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You don't want to float away. You don't want to be on the lazy river that takes you into strange teachings and away from Christ that ultimately leads to your destruction forever. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. In other words, don't be lazy in the river of strange teachings, but be strengthened by the ocean of the grace of God in the gospel. And this brings us now to our text and how the author portrays Christ, his person and work, as the all-sufficient grace of God for the strength of our hearts. That's the heart of this text. The author presenting to us this morning, this Sunday, Jesus Christ his person, and his work as the all-sufficient strength of our hearts. So here's my outline for the rest of this sermon. Just two points. You can stay with me with two points, right? You got yeah, two, and I know there's sub-points within. My son always reminds me, Dad, you have two points, but come on. There's like sub-points under there, but you can stay with me. Here they are, for those that like them ahead of time. A gracious truth. I want you to see this gracious truth. This is amazing grace. We've sung about it. Now we're going to see it very directly in God's word. A gracious truth. And then secondly, second of two points, a necessary implication. It's not optional what we're going to see in this text. It is a necessary implication of embracing this gracious truth. So let's take each one in turn. First, a gracious truth. Do you see it there or you can hear it in verse 10? Let me read it to you. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And right now, this seems like ancient language, and it is. And here, altar language. What's going on here? We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What's going on here? Stay with me. You can understand this. The author makes an emphatic assertion. And here it is. We Christians have an altar. So what's he mean by this? So we have an altar Sounds like it's good news, but what does it mean? The Christian altar, let's be clear, is the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, no word games here. That's what it is. The Christian altar is the sacrifice of Christ, the source of both the saving and sustaining grace of God. See, the author of Hebrews consistently makes the argument that the high priestly office, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial laws, the sanctuary under the old covenant, they find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. You know that from the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's greater. And he's the fulfillment of all these types and shadows 
of the old covenant system, right? We read in Hebrews 10.1, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, but in Christ we see the reality. In Jesus is the reality of all these types and shadows that we're reminded of in the book of Hebrews under the old covenant system. Now, to help us understand the meaning of the Christian altar, our text proceeds to compare and contrast the work of Christ with the Day of Atonement as seen in Leviticus 16. Now, you don't need to turn there, and I'm just going to try to make like Peter and stir you up by way of remembrance so you can see the glory of Christ in the context of Leviticus 16, because that's what our author has in mind here, this glorious day of atonement that is being fulfilled in Christ. I know this because of verses 11 and 12 in our text. So I know this is an allusion to Leviticus 16. Let me read it to you. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, what's going on there? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What should be coming to mind, there's an allusion here to Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. Let me remind you what that was under the Old Covenant system. The Day of Atonement was an annual ritual instituted for the purification of the most holy place and the people. So purification was in view with the Day of Atonement, this annual ritual. How will God's people be purified? How will they be cleansed of their sins so God can remain among His people? How can utter holiness dwell with a sinful people? Well, the the Day of Atonement was a pointer to a greater sacrifice, but this is what God was doing under the Old Covenant system so that God could remain with His people. The high priest, let me summarize briefly what happened. The high priest presented one bull as a sin offering for himself and one goat as a sin offering for the people. So the one presenting, this this priest had to be cleansed, so he had his own bull and then a goat for the people had to be slaughtered and so that sins could be atoned for. He would take the blood of the bull and of the goat into the most holy place and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and on the altar. Now, the bodies of both, that bull and goat, would not be used for sacrificial food, but taken outside the camp and burned. But another goat was used in this ritual, so there's a third animal, one that was not slain. The high priest laid both hands on the head of the live goat and confessed all the sins of the Israelites. That would take a while. You think your church service is long? Okay. The sins were symbolically transferred to the goat and sent out into the wilderness, an unclean place. Now, in this way, the sins of the people were atoned for and the most holy place cleansed, allowing God's presence to continue with his people. Those sins carried away symbolically into the wilderness as they were transferred to the live goat. Now, the author of Hebrews would have a see that the Day of Atonement as a perpetual ritual was pointing to the all-sufficient, one-time offering of Christ, an offering we desperately needed. Why? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the constant refrain of the book of Hebrews. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ultimately take away sin. We need a better sacrifice, which is why we see in verse 12, so Jesus 
so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you see, the day of atonement foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ and a better blood. And so we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the day of atonement, that annual ritual, was pointing to a better blood, to the blood of Christ. That's the Christian altar, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who went outside the gate and suffered for sinners like you and like me. What a gift. Now, that's the first point. Look at that. Got through one. Got one more. A necessary implication of that. Say you've received that gracious truth. You're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. You're a Christian, that is. You're born again. You're walking with Him. You're a disciple of Christ. You're saved. What should your life look like? What's the implication of that? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? The author of Hebrews wants to help you this morning. Not only understand the call on the Christian, but count the cost of following Christ. I see it here in verse 13, do you? Therefore, that triggers implication right there. I see that word, therefore, and I know, okay, there's an implication or an application for me to make that there is a Christian altar, there is this glorious person and work of Christ, there is a gospel, and if I've received it, there's a therefore, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For some of you right now, your heart just sank because you thought, what? Oh, no. I understand somewhat the Day of Atonement. And it's clear enough there, and I'm not sure I like what happens outside the gate. And now God's Word is calling me to follow Him outside that gate and identify with the one who suffered and died for us. We are called to go to Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. But here's my question. What is the reproach that Christ endured? If I'm to share in it, if I'm to identify with it, what is it? What reproach did he endure outside the city gate? Well, nothing less than the shame of the cross. And it's worth remembering what this is. Indeed, on a hill far away, outside the city gates of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha or Calvary, the place of a skull, after offering him wine mixed with gall, a bitter herb that could be poisonous, they crucified Jesus by driving seven-inch iron spikes through his wrists and feet. What is the cross but an emblem of suffering and shame? And as he bore the unspeakable physical agony of the cross, for how long, you recall, six hours, he hung there, what torture, what suffering, what pain, what agony. But as he hung there in that unspeakable physical agony of the cross, Jesus also endured the mocking and the jeering of the crowd that it was undoubtedly exacerbated by demonic celebration. I know this from Matthew 27. Let me rehearse for you what was going on as he hung there for those six hours of unspeakable physical agony. Matthew writes, 
And those who passed by derided him, mocking, scorning, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, so even the pastors of the day, came up watching him suffer during those six hours. And they came up to him, and what did they do? It says, they mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Look how pitiful he is. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. In other words, God doesn't love you. You wouldn't be hanging there if he loved you. You wouldn't be suffering if he loved you, right? Just exacerbating the pain that he was going through. And finally, one more episode here. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers, now these robbers on his left and right, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. But worst of all, and thank God we are not called to endure this, Jesus endured the full wrath of God against sin, such that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what happened to him outside the gate. That's what happened to him outside the camp. That's where he went. That reproach, that scorn, he endured it for sinners like us. Now, having seen that maybe again for the first time, look at what our text is saying. That's where we go. That's where the Christian is called to go. There. We are called to go to this suffering servant. By faith, we identify and associate with a bloody Savior, the one who was banished outside the gate, the one the world mocks and hates and scorns, the one the devil despises with every fiber in his being. We go to Jesus, and there we live and die to the glory of the triune God. We walk by faith, not by sight, outside into this present wilderness, and there we sing, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That's the call of the Christian life. This is the way of Christ. This is the call of discipleship. Jesus said as much in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He doesn't tell us to take up a beach towel. doesn't tell us to take up a blanket. doesn't tell us to take up a pillow. But he calls us to take up this emblem of suffering and shame and identify with Jesus in this present wilderness. Friends, have you considered the consequences, though, of not bearing the reproach of Christ? I could exhort you to do it, but let me help you in this way. Have you considered the consequence of not bearing the reproach of Christ, of not following him outside the city gate, as it were, of not severing ties with the world and associating with Jesus, the consequences couldn't be more tragic. Jesus tells us what the consequence would be of one who would not go. Mark 8, again, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the question before us, based on this text, will you experience the temporary reproach of this world or the everlasting shame of God? That's an easy decision for me. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. I do not want the everlasting shame of God. When he comes, let's put it positively, I want him to say, my son, my child. I don't want him to be ashamed of me. Well, say you're with me, and you see that, and you're somewhat trembling, going, well, that's the call of Christ on my life. Does our author here give us any help? Because you might say, I, I want to obey that. I want to live like that, but it just feels heavy. It feels like, how am I ever going to do that? The author knows we need help. And so like a good pastor, he gives us some help. In other words, he helps us answer the question, why should we bear the reproach of Christ? Why? Why would we do this? Why would we go into this present wilderness and identify with a bloody Savior, associate with Jesus, the one who was mocked and scorned and ridiculed and ultimately killed on the cross? Why would we go there? Look at verse 14 with me. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The author puts before us the great incentive to live for Christ, and he does it both negatively and positively by considering two cities. Two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And you see it there in verse 14, or you hear it. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city of God. And that four in verse 14 tips me off to reason or incentive why I would identify with Jesus, why I would go outside the gate, why I would live in this present wilderness for Jesus and not for the world. For here we have no lasting city. It's not lasting, it's fleeting. But we seek the city that is to come. So let's look at each in turn, right? I want to look at it negatively. Here we have no lasting city. And then I want to look at it positively. We seek the city that is to come to incentivize you to live for Christ outside the gate. Okay. So first, negatively, bear the reproach Christ endured because, reason, here we have no lasting city. The city of man is what the Bible refers to as the world in its sinful pattern of existence. It is what we belong to by our fallen human nature. It is temporary and fleeting, and so are its pleasures. The city of man is like the leaves that fall every autumn, so beautiful and yet dead. Have you noticed that? It's beautiful probably here, and I'm guessing October, maybe late September. Those leaves that fall, we notice the color, and we say, oh, they're beautiful. They're falling, why? Because they're dead. So it's, it's somewhat of a mirage. They are beautiful, but they're, they're beautiful in that sense because they're dying. And that's like the city of man. The leaves that fall every autumn, so beautiful and yet dead. These leaves burst forth with brilliant colors for a time, and they give way to the cold, dark, lifeless winter. And that's the world. Holding before you these fake beauties, with everything dying Oh, how enticing is the city of man. So much so that when Jesus tenderly looked at the rich young ruler and said, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me, the man left full of sorrow because he had great possessions. 
He gave up eternal riches in Christ for the pleading, fleeting pleasures of this world. And our text says, don't do that. That is the devil's bargain. He would love for you to make that exchange. But if you go to it, you will make shipwreck of your faith if you make that bargain. So plug your ears and remember Jesus Christ, your sure and steady anchor when that siren song of the world comes to you and wants you to make that awful exchange. Don't do it. Go to Christ and bear the reproach he endured for here we have no lasting city. It's fleeting. Don't bank your life on it. Now positively, incentive to live for Christ. You see it here? Bear the reproach that Christ endured because we seek the city that is to come. It's what we do as Christians. We can bear the reproach of Christ because we're on a pilgrimage and we know where it's going. It's going to the city of God. See, the city of God is what we seek. Do you notice in this text, the author doesn't exhort us to seek it. It's not an exhortation. Seek the city of God. Be, be seekers. He's saying, that's what we do. That's what Christians do. That's what de defines us as Christians. We are seekers of the glorious permanent city of God. It is what the book of Hebrews elsewhere calls God's rest, eternal inheritance, kingdom, eternal possession, salvation, heaven. And I find that very instructive for us. That this isn't an exhortation. This is a good diagnostic question. Are you seeking the city of God, because that's what Christians do. If you're not on a pilgrimage seeking the city of God, I would wonder, are you a disciple of Christ? Because the author here says that's what Christians do. We're seeking the city of God. Like our forefathers, we are pilgrims moving unwaveringly toward the city of God. You, you hear this in Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith. You remember, starting at verse 8, listen to what our forefathers did, how their life was defined as one of a pilgrim, a sojourner, a seeker. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and maker is God. That defined Abraham's life. He was on a pilgrimage Godward. Or later in Hebrews 11, listen to Moses, his life, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Hear that? He's an example of our text. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So that, that defines the Christian life. I'll take the reproach of Christ because I know where it's leading glory forever at the Father's right hand. Unlike the city of man where the pleasures are fleeting, temporary and limited, in the city of God there is fullness of joy, pleasures at his right hand forevermore. So go to Christ and bear the reproach he endured because we seek the city that is to come. And do you understand the scope 
of this gift, the scope of this reward. It is breathtaking. Jesus picks up on it in Matthew 5, 5. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. And then, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 puts it this way. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things? All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. To be a co-heir with Christ, everything that is his is ours in the gospel. Go outside the city gate, bear the reproach of Christ, for we seek that city, and that city's coming. It's coming. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we know where this whole thing is headed. The glorious city of God, where every tear is wiped away, no more mourning, crying, or pain. Death swallowed up in victory, uninterrupted communion with God in the fullness of joy forever. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we see ourselves as pilgrims in this life. Do you think of yourself that way? There's a, self, a way to self-identify. I'm a pilgrim for Christ. And therefore, we won't be deterred from our holy pursuit of our heavenly home. And so we sing along the king's way, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, that is his city, is forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us all the grace we need, which you have in Christ, to be pilgrims worthy of the name, that we would live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this text tells us that that worthy life will go outside the gate and bear the same reproach he endured And so we beg of you, God, to give us the courage to be Christians in our day, that we would shine like light and be um, particular like salt in this present darkness that is a fallen world. Oh, Lord, would you shine brightly in and through us that people might see our lives and hear our words of gospel hope and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.